Welcome to My Gnarliest Moment, the podcast that delves deep into the world of extreme sports and exploration, sharing hair-raising stories from professional athletes and adventurists from all over the globe, and how they overcame their greatest challenges. Andrew Hughes is an incredibly accomplished yet brilliantly humble adventurer, mountaineer, explorer, extreme sports enthusiast, Guinness World Record holder, and human rights advocate. In 2020, he became the fastest and first American man and third person ever to complete the Antarctica trifecta, and has completed both the seven summits ascents and six of the seven volcanic summits. We recorded this episode on his two-year anniversary of his successful Mount Everest summit attempt, with Andrew sharing his gnarliest and most harrowing stories that led him from a background in law and politics to reaching the highest mountain in the world, as well as sustaining the passion to continue his work, advocacy, and adventures sustainably. Let's get into it. Andrew, it's an absolute delight to welcome you to the podcast. Longtime admirer, as we've just been talking about offline, and your accomplishments read like you know a shopping list to me, like a grocery list. You're essentially a professional adventurer, you're a mountaineer, you're also a human rights advocate. And one thing I particularly love about your story as well is that you hold the Guinness World Record for hosting what I believe is the highest tea party ever at the summit of Mount Everest um, two years ago, which is incredible. Um, And you're showing no signs of slowing up from what I can also see from your upcoming adventures that you've got planned. So before you tell me about those, what would you say in your own words is your motivation or inspiration for what it is that you do? Uh, so for me, that it's it's been an evolution. Um, I think a lot of things that call a lot of people to uh, the mountains and to kind of extremes. Um, it is a certain form of searching and conquering of something. For me personally, that's what it went into as well. There's a lot of disruptive things earlier in my uh, I say earlier in my life, but earlier in my 30s, um, which it feels like a lifetime ago, but it was about 10 years ago uh, when I kind of really got into everything. Um, but I think. Uh, as we'll go into about moments of extreme uh, extremes in our lives, extreme moments, um, those things reshaped and, and reframed what uh, what I was doing and why I was doing it. Uh, I think also the the pandemic when it took away a lot of things for us, it also uh, kind of reminded us that like we are so graced with the opportunity to go into these places, and so the way in which we go matters. Um, and that kind of led me to kind of start developing, uh, really not even developing, but reaching back into parts of my earlier advocacy, earlier forms of like professional um, kind of journey um, and bring that back into what I was doing, which is advocacy for the people and the places um, and the things that are connected to those people and places. Um, so human rights, environmental issues, sustainability, um, all tied into it. So for me, it's, it's, elevating everything, not just myself, I would say, um, at the end of the day. And so what I'd love to sort of, and I know we briefly just spoke about this, but I also have to talk about it because there's a photograph right behind you that we spoke about, which is you also hold the world record for the highest marriage proposal on earth. So let's start off. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's part, part of it as well. When I started climbing, um, I was single, unattached. Uh, it was kind of like a country song here. Like my dog had died. I got divorced. Uh, a job wasn't going well, so what better way to go and try to find yourself than, than go to a mountain? It's, it feels almost like a, a very classic, almost, narrative. Um, but um, I was very, very fortunate uh, along that path to be a blind date, um, meet my now wife, um, who was so supportive, understanding, and gracious in giving me the time and opportunity to continue to to venture as I do, even in the early parts of our dating, we spent the, essentially the first 
probably six to eight months of our first year and a half of dating, I was either in Antarctica or on mountains, whether it's in Ecuador or uh, Everest. So, uh, yeah, I knew that when I eventually reached the summit of Everest, I wanted to ensure that she was standing there with me in, in a sense, uh, even though she was back in Seattle, and to ensure that um, she understood that my reaching that point wasn't because of me, but because of the people in my life. And so, yeah, it was, it, it gave a great reason to reach that high point where I could actually like pull it out and propose to her on the summit of Everest and have my buddy Garrett um, kind of record it. And then I didn't tell her for a month and a half and came home and took her out on a lake in, here in Washington. Uh, she's more, more of the, the liquid form of water and not the frozen form of water is her kind of her thing. So went out boating, proposed on, on the lake. And uh, yeah, then we ended up getting married um, uh, on the rock in New York, did a little elopement in New York City because we figured from the top of one rock to the top of the other. So from, from, from summit to city kind of thing. But yeah, so it's a uh, so, so I guess the two universities since I proposed to her. So yeah. Well, congratulations, and I absolutely love that story. It's incredibly heartwarming. Um, but speaking of sort of high up things, let's talk about the highest tea party as well, because I really do have to understand the story behind this. Like, d- did it strike you as you were already setting out to summit Everest, or was it very pre-planned? Like, I, I just uh, I'd, I'd yeah. love to hear about that. Very pre-planned because I learned through. I mean, what one of the things I did during the pandemic we all had our, our different endeavors and adventures that we did within our homes mine was to deep dive into all the random records that exist when it comes to high altitude and I've, i fully have always owned that and this is why i love the mountains is because you really climb your own mountain at your own pace um and, and we all have to climb because um the hubris of, of chasing somebody else's like pace usually leads to something uh usually catastrophic or or, or not authentic to ourselves um, which is what I've always loved. Like you, even a rock climbing route, you have to adjust your own body to the the, the route itself. Um, you don't climb it exactly like anybody else. Uh, so for me, like I was always looking for records that were unique. Um, my my family, my dad's side is British. Uh, he was born in Devon, and so I grew up in a small bed and breakfast actually outside Seattle that was ran as an English manor, and mm-hmm. I would wake up to rooms for the guests and then would like organize high tea in the afternoon and um and so for me like tea it came into my life before coffee and i i live off coffee because i'm from seattle but tea is also a very part of who i am and for me also tea is just something that no matter where i've traveled i feel it's always so very part of multiple cultures um, and especially in nepal going from tea house to tea house to um there there's something that's very much about this coming together and I saw it as a record that was not about me, but, and, and so the record itself actually involves everybody who took place in it. Um, and it was just, what did I miss when the pandemic kind of closed the mountains down? It was my community and my mountain family and the opportunity to come together. And so I applied for the record. Records are really easy to break and really hard to get um, kind of signed off on by Guinness World Record. So it took a lot of planning to get figure out what I need to do to ensure like I had to get my food handler's permit so I could handle the biscuits um, and, and all those things. And uh, But it was lovely. Um, we did two actually world record. Uh, the first attempt we tried was at base camp because I had a great company, Mir, um, who does a lot of kind of uh, thermoses and, and um, different incredible kind of reusable 
um, vessels um, who donated thousands of dollars of kit that I actually carried over to and brought up to base camp and gave to all the, to the our Sherpa team um, and high altitude Himalayan kind of team that worked in camp. Um, so the first one we did, we did at base camp. The only problem was base camp was just like 30 meters below where we needed to to break the record. So we did our first like big one with everyone and gave everyone kind of um, uh, all this like free kit. And then we did a, a secondary one that I carried up the stuff to camp two, which is at about 21,500 feet. And we got horrible weather the whole time we were there. And so it was just this big snow laden thing, but like we got it out there. We sat in our summit suits. We enjoyed some tea, um, had some biscuits. I brought Girl Scout cookies from the United States. So it, it was great. Um, and again, it's amidst all those moments of like real like severity and when everyone is feeling so much pressure from trying to climb, it's kind of nice sometimes to just have something that reminds you of, of the people you're with and you get outside yourself and outside your own mind. Um, and just a little bit of levity, um, and miss everything. So yeah, it, it was special. Um, and, uh, yeah, hopefully to do more things like that. Absolutely. An incredible story. I have to say, I'm probably going to get cancelled by the British people because I take Tad Vasso's approach on what tea is, which is, I think he called it garbage water. And that's how I feel. I'm, I'm a coffee drinker through and through. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, <Sorry>. yeah. <laughs> but I guess what I also would love to know about um, is you are the fastest and first American man, as well as the third person ever to complete the Antarctica trifecta. So tell me about that story moving on from, you know, just yeah. summiting yeah. Everest, having tea up there. Yeah, so leading up to the pandemic, um, beforehand, before we knew it was coming down, um, me and uh, one of my adventure partners, uh, Roxy Bowl, who uh, we started climbing together way back in the day and have done a lot of different objectives together, um, we decided we wanted to do a, a trip that really, or an adventure that really hadn't been done before by any Americans and only really been accomplished once before. And it's not because of necessarily the, the nature of the object, each individual objective. It's the ability to complete them within the season where the weather actually permits it. So logistically, which I think a lot of actual um, adventures are logistically, uh, logistics are what make things so difficult sometimes before you even get there. So you can um, get to a place and then you have to try to pull it all together. So for us, it was this idea of tying together um the South Pole uh, by reaching it by ski, climbing the highest mountain, uh, Vincent Massif, and then also climbing the rarely climbed Mount Sidley, which is the highest volcano in um, uh, in Antarctica. And um, we were able to to do it. Thankfully, basically, we got in on the first flight to with all the climbers coming into Union Glacier, which is the main um, base from which you operate out of. And we were on the last flight out. That took us literally the entire season down there to get it done. Um, but we were only, I think the, the second or third people to ever do it. And, uh, we were, the, we basically did it faster than the previous person and we're the first American. So it was amazing. I mean, uh, each one had its own unique, um, challenges and things that probably we could talk about for the gnarliest moments. There was definitely, there was like rationing and getting like frostbitten and stuff on, on this massive for like coming down with, uh, kind of trench foot and pneumonia on the way to the South Pole or uh, when we went out to Mount Sidley, like that, that mountain is just so unique. It's It's been climbed, I think, 10 times, I think, up to that point. I thought we were like the 50th and 50th person ever to stand on its summit. So it's just its own, such a unique place to go because you're literally out in the middle of nowhere, um, 600 miles away from the nearest 
other person. So uh, it's just, it was a special adventure. Um, and it kind of went over Christmas and New Year's and my birthday. So yeah, it's, it, it, it was, and then right before uh, the pandemic too. So it was nice to have that bottled up inside um, as a memory. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, of all sort of, again, the adventures, the challenges that you've touched upon so far, let's let's get into it. You know, you've touched on gnarly moments there, but what would you say is potentially the gnarliest moment that you can think of in your exploration, adventuring career to date? Yeah, I mean, it's it seems a bit cliche, and but it seems also appropriate since today is like two years from when I when I summited Everest. But um, our our first night coming into Everest, um, our uh, camp four. Yeah, that might have been one of the most challenging and um, intense evenings of my life. Um, and I was happy to share it uh, with, with a number of my members on the team, but uh, Ronan, um, who is, uh, who actually lives in uh, Notting Hill, um, like we both were in the tent together that night. And it was just one of those things we, we came up after a long day. Our, our season in 21 was unique in itself because COVID was still happening. So there was very much this, this island of um, teams. Each team was its own kind of uh, special, I guess, group um, because we couldn't co-mingle like we normally do. There's usually a community of people where you're going between team to team. So you became, I think, actually closer than ever with the people that you showed up with. And then on that day when we kind of rolled into Camp 4, it was just... It was just full on. Um, there was two storms, cyclones coming off the Bay of Bengal that were converging on the mountain. And so the weather windows were small. And um, the time between those weather windows was some of the most intense weather I've ever been on any mountain. And then to couple that with being essentially on, on the cusp of the death zone, right, right, right below 8,000 meters. Uh, the, I mean, we, I can go into it as much as you want, but like the, what happened was essentially we got up there. Um, the day took longer um, than we anticipated. Um, we rolled in, we settled in and we both just proceeded to pass out after we fell into our tent, waking up in the middle of the night. And the storm was like raging to the point where it was picking up chunks, um, like small chunks of rock and pelleting on the side of our tent. So we're wearing helmets because we were just getting basically like, like shrapnel all around um and under the, it was just a very morbid scene we woke up we realized we were low on o's low on water our stove was with another part of our team because we had broken up all the, the gear so people had different gear and different things um a couple of our our lead guides were in a tent somewhere but because of the storm it was so loud and, and so violent that we couldn't like yell across um and so we, we kind of just like, we, we knew we, we needed, we couldn't get to the morning without O's. Um, and we didn't know where, where our cache is. Every team caches different levels of different places in O's. And we didn't want to go and search around, take somebody else's because people rely upon their stuff there. And we just didn't want to go and start just rummaging around um, in the middle of the night. And, but we, there's no way we would have been able to potentially survive till the morning. Um, without getting more O and um, and more water, and so we, I decided to go out um, in the middle of the night um, and try to find. And it was just Camp Four itself is just carnage. It's a place um, that doesn't feel like you're you're welcomed or wanted, and it's a place where, unfortunately, because people are in this state of 
survival, they also leave um, a substantial amount of the remnants of, kind of, of, of themselves. And so it feels like there's a bit of a graveyard up there. Uh, not on the sense of bodies, but just kind of this sense of like old tents, like being ripped at by the wind that are like an abandoned, um, the grounds littered with like holes, which just kind of, and, and dirt and, and well, not dirt, but just garbage and everything else. And I remember like we went out there and I was like taking my oxygen down and yelling for, for anybody from our team just to figure out which tents were ours to go in. Um, and couldn't find anybody. And unfortunately, right next to the entry point of our tent was a tent from 2019 and somebody that had passed away and his body was still laying outside his tent halfway out and he'd been mummified. But just, I remember in my headlamp looking around and just seeing the debris shooting across the front, um, being pelted by like small rocks and pieces of things in the air coming through and going back to our tent and seeing this person that had passed right there in front of us. It just, the the proximity and then you deal with this in the medical world the proximity sometimes to, to loss um especially when you're trying to survive um just drives home the need to dig deeper and, and and to make things happen so you can get through what you're going through and so we went back to the tent and fortunately i found one person from our tent we got this tiniest bit of water where we were just like sipping on nublets. They poured a little bit into our bottle and went back to our tent and we're like, well, this is what we got till the morning. Um, and then within about, um, sorry for the length of the story, but within, within like the next hour, we saw a headlamp moving and we were like, Oh, it must be like somebody from, from our, our group coming through. And so we kind of yelled out to them and, they came over and unzipped the outside of our tent and just fell in. And then it was actually um, a member uh, uh, of another team's um, climbing team, a, a local uh, kind of a Sherpa uh, who was kind of had gone on a late start and come in a tent and couldn't find either his, his group and hadn't been using oxygen because like for whatever reason, I mean, they're just, so damn strong and usually they can go but the, the, the weather and the exertion had just kind of taxed him out. And, um, he just kind of like fell into our tent and had a walkie talkie on him. So we started radioing, trying to find which team he was in because we didn't want anybody to be like thinking that he was still out there and go looking for him in that storm. Um, and I just remember holding him in my arms and making him take oxygen because he just didn't want to take oxygen, which is again, just shows the, the kind of really a lot of the inequality that exists when it comes to resource allocation on Everest, um, that this man who, who needed something just was so willing and wanting to kind of like serve his job that he didn't do what he needed to do to survive for himself. And that just goes into like the view of an, a greater need for humanity and allocation of taking care of everybody on the mountain, not just the people that are paying, but the people that are there and making it possible. Um, but I remember him just being an arm, getting an oxygen. He was like extremely like just, and he's coming apart a lot and ends up like vomiting all over, like having horrible all sickness. And I just, yeah, we, we kept on radioing down to camp two. We were then trying to radio up and then between the storm breaks, trying to yell out because we needed water for him. He was completely dehydrated and he needed like food, water. Um, and we were trying to get him warm. And he was just, his lips were like turning colors. Um, 
eventually like, we were fortunate there was like these little small breaks in the storm and every time a break in the storm the wind would come we'd pull down our mask um and take a piece of it's like take a deep breath of oxygen and then yell as loud as you can um trying to find because we didn't know that like, the radios weren't going through clearly to the other um to anybody no one could hear anything and eventually one of our um our team of guides, um, Rob Smith and sent a couple other guys, they, they heard this yelling between the storms, um, and eventually found us and luckily brought over a, a small stove from our kit that they had in their tent that we could use. Um, I took off a buff that I've been wearing for a week and a half as to filter it. So we eventually started taking snow that Clearly, probably we wouldn't normally drink out of um, that was right outside of tents because you need to go a long way outside of Camp 4 before you find anything clean. So we were just taking anything, bits and all, melting it, taking my uh, buff that had not been washed. It had been worn pretty heavy for about a week and a half and then hadn't been washed for two months. And using that as our kind of um, almost our cheesecloth grate to pour the water through, um, which we then all shared and enjoyed. Um, and eventually we, we like were able to kind of find out what team he was on, but we didn't want to send him out. So we just laid him between us, uh, me and my buddy Ronan and made sure that he was like safe, kept him on oxygen. Eventually we were up to like three or four in the morning. That's one of the things it's just like, you know, you only have so much in your tank when you're going up to these places. I always think like you're always during a long expedition trying to keep as much banked away so you can make those deposits of like when they, when they matter. Um, or withdrawals when they matter. So, um, and this was one of those moments where, like, it wasn't an anticipated withdrawal from our energy because you should be sleeping and resting and preparing for the summit push. But there is somebody in need, and that need is more important than you. And, and in those moments, like, the summit goes away, and this person's life um, is with you, and you have to care for each other. And I just remember, I mean, he stayed with us and the next morning things calmed down a little bit. We were able to get him over to his tent um, with the rest of his team. But like that that night in general, just the, the rawness of it and the perspective that it, that it put upon us to remember like what matters and just these little seeds of things that like in the moments you didn't realize being planted, but then over the course of years take deeper root. Those ideas of the equality and humility and, and selflessness and separating yourself from the summits and, and realizing um, why you're there and what's important. Um, I, I think the, those things um, get planted in experiences like that and, and, and grow differently over time, but definitely um, definitely take root in, in these extreme experiences that kind of occur in life. And so that, that might be one of the, the gnarliest moments. I mean, our whole time up there was pretty, pretty savage um we we didn't get the the, the grace of, of a our summit day was beautiful but um everything on either side of it was just pure savagery um for our weather so but well yeah i would say that's probably one of them i mean it's, it's an incredible story and so many things to dig in on from what you've described and i think it just needs to be recognized how commendable it is that as you say you know the, the the summit kind of fell away when you identified that there was someone in need and that's not an isolated incident, you know, in these kinds of environments where for whatever reason people struggle um, and you, know, you obviously were there at the right time, but you dedicated yourself to reaching out. And I think that is absolutely commendable. 
And a large part of these conversations and stories um, from what people have shared with me is actually understanding the lessons that were learned. And you've touched on that a little bit, but I would love to know sort of what you felt in the aftermath about what had happened and what you reflected on and whether that experience changed your perception of risk or willingness to engage with sort of, as we would probably describe it to be a dangerous situation. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to, to risk, like I, I'm always one, I was lucky early on to have a few uh, significant um, summit shortcomings, which provided me with a, a good dose of humility. Which, and, and as we talked about before, we kind of started recording. I, I think that everything is great and grand until it's not. And those moments um, are when things usually, like the longer you've had to build up a sense of like hubris to your system, without it being truly tested or um, coming apart a little bit. Um, and so your ability to kind of like re rebuild it and, and refine it. Um, I think for me, like I had those things early on. And so like the humility aspect uh, of risk is, and risk are, are very much hand in hand. Like I understand there's risk where I go and risk what I do, but I also understand that the, the impermanence of me versus the, the more permanent nature of the places I go to when it comes to what they can dole out, that they're always going to be there. You can always go back to the mountains. Um, but it doesn't stop me from wanting to go. Like for me, like it's, it's why I go. Um, and risk is not the reason it's kind of this reverence and this place of connection. Um, and this, and that's for me, what draws me back is it's, if you are someone of, say, faith, you go to church to hear the sermon because it, it calls you, uh, it calls you back to this connection. Um, and for me, every time I go into nature, whether it be the Arctic or a mountain or heck, even just a park walk, and like that, for me, it, it is a sermon of connection to something that is greater. And so. Um, Going up and, and being in that moment, what it did, because it basically reminded me of we are connected. Um, it is about connection. Connection comes first. Um, and then when you have that connection, you can create great things. Um, and so the next day, because I was connected to this community, like the, the ability to climb any of these mountains is not because of me. It's because everyone in my life that I'm connected to, like, that is what those things mean to me. It just reaffirms that no summit is stood on alone and that they are all shared by everyone and everything that has helped us to get to that point and everything that will help us from that point going forward. And it's our then responsibility and privilege as well to help others also elevate and reach those summits and to do it uh, and to be an advocate um, for these people and places um, that we're also connected to because seeing Camp 4 seeing kind of the a lot of the kind of inequitable treatment sometimes of, of the people that exist usually on the forefront of adventuring um i think it's important to kind of remember um that we can't go anywhere without impacting it and so how can we better impact it um, through our presence well, what you just shared feeds beautifully into my next question, which is, um, you know, you've talked about resource allocation and seeing these practical, tangible inequalities in your summit story. And I wondered, is, is that was that the prompt for your sort of human rights advocacy work? Um, and how does that tie in with striking a balance in your other career as an explorer? Um, how, how do you fit that all in and where does that come yeah. from? 
I, I think there there's a lot of greenwashing when it comes to, I mean, corporations, but there's also greenwashing when it comes to uh, people to go to the outdoors um, because there's a slight bit of hypocrisy in the fact that we, we, we go in these places and then we stand have, stand there um, in our in our clothing, which are sourced from like polyesters or or um, other like animal byproducts or things like that, um, and we've gotten there through helicopters and planes as well, usually. And like like where we go takes an extreme amount of allocation of resources, um, and then we are also impacting the very places that are pristine and untouched, um, and. We sit there and we talk about kind of uh, sustainability and and like raising money for climate change, but we never. I think you rarely hear people own the fact that I too am impacting by just being here. But I do think that this goes back to this idea of connection, and simply not going to a place does not. Um, for me, it, it negates the ability to be a good advocate. I think sometimes you have to own your impact find a way to try to mitigate that impact through more sustainable practices. And if you can realize the privilege of that position and then be a better advocate for the people and places that you're at, because usually the people like the way I got involved in like kind of human rights watch. Um, and over the years was this understanding that there's a nexus between kind of where climate change is most impactful and also the people um, that are most in, that are indigenous or the communities that are connected to those places are also on the front lines. And and those are also usually places, too, where people want to adventure. They're the mountains and they're the Arctic and kind of these the extreme places or they're indigenous lands in general. Um, and for me, it's, okay, so if we're going to go in here, it can't be a story about me. And, I, and it has to be a story about, about them, about the place, and, and about us because we're all connected. And so it always, for me, goes back to connection with, with the hope that connection creates empathy, understanding, and then advocacy. And so how is that fed into as well, um, tying in all of these things together into your upcoming adventures on a slightly more lighthearted note, because it's always exciting to talk yeah. about upcoming challenges. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about those, because you've got a lot planned. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of the stuff I'm looking to do coming going forward um, ties in uh, different records that involve sustainability, um, this idea of kind of like... Um, the cyclical nature of, of product development, the hope of kind of recycling and reusing a product. Um, and then, I mean, the goal is for the getting back to the Arctic next year. Oh, it's been five years where it's been canceled. Um, but I think we hopefully in year six will be able to make it happen. But I'll, I'll be working um, with a lot of uh, different scientists and researchers to hopefully do an expanded project um, kind of in about 10 months time where we're going to go over uh, a degree and a half, symbolic of the degree and a half remaining for the UN, the tipping point. Um, but we're also going to be working with the Polar Science Center and a number of other climatologists and, and OSHA and doing a substantial amount of research on areas of the ice um, and observational research that hasn't been done before. At the same time, um, I've been trying to work with um, Human Rights Watch and a few other kind of um, creatives, uh, different people in film and stuff like that, to hopefully... Uh, create some storytelling as well, not just about the Arctic itself, um, but about the people that are being impacted, the people, the, the Sami who live um, along the Arctic, the Inuit, and, and trying to together, tie together stories showing that um, this interconnected nature of the Arctic 
um, adventuring and uh, the individual communities that are trying to find a new way to survive and sustain their way of life um, and history um, within these kind of places that are altering um, and altering rapidly uh, because of climate change. And another thing I'm really interested in is the longevity of your career. And I suppose, is that one of the factors that sort of helps you to sustain the motivation to do the things that you do? And what do you see sort of yourself accomplishing in the next, say, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, however long um, you want to keep going for? I feel like, so I I was, uh, I appreciate the longevity. I also feel like I got in late in the game. Like, because I started climbing really when I was in my early 30s. same, same buddy. So th- this is this is motivation for me hearing hearing it from you as well. It was one of those things where I was like in previous my previous life, um, I was in law and politics and and like a, a, a barrister basically and, and doing things like in that in that world and um, I just kind of felt that 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 specific path wasn't for me and so this path has kind of in a way led me back to what I was passionate about about going to law school in the first place, which was a form of social justice and advocacy. Um, And I do think if you only go um, out to adventure for yourself and you only go out to kind of elevate yourself, eventually, like, either, for me, that that becomes something that loses its meaning. It It has to be bigger than you. Like, the things you, like, if you continue just to elevate yourself, you're going to be by yourself. And I, I kind of feel the way that you create kind of a passion to continue um, is about looking for ways to connect with other people. And and for me, it's like finding things that I'm passionate about, which is the world that I live and share, and finding ways to hopefully elevate other people instead. So finding ways to be a creative storyteller and an adventure still and knowing that I want to start a family and and I want a world that my children can also experience and explore and connect with in a way that I have um, just means a lot. And that that's not just about like environmental actually, that's about like socioeconomic barriers that keep people from having relationships with, with nature. Um, and that starts not like in far distance lands from where I am or here, that starts literally in communities within my own cities that have economic barriers um, and social barriers that have kept them from uh, having any kind of relationship with climbing or hiking or anything at all. Um, because at the end of the day, and this goes, I mean, it's cycling back through what I said, but the only way I think people that truly have um, a want and a will to be an advocate is when they have a relationship. And so the only way you get a relationship is by getting people out there to experience something. And it can be as simple as a hike up to an alpine lake or something like that. Like finding transportation to get them from a part of their community to a different part of a place that's not that far away. Uh, Like here in Seattle, it's an hour to a beautiful alpine lake hike, but so many people never get that opportunity. And that's, it's not a huge financial amount, but for some it's, it's, it's mountain sized. And so finding ways, even in our own communities and our own ways to kind of get people greater accessibility, I think is part of how you change um, change the wave of um, engaging with the environment and, and protecting our environment so future generations can enjoy it as we've been privileged to enjoy it. And that's that's wonderful. I mean, I, I think it's interesting when 
you know, we talk about the value of being outdoors. And I've spoken to people on and off this podcast as well, and many of whom refer to, you know, being in the outdoors as a kind of therapy for them. Would you say the same is true for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I always say this nurturing in nature. Like there's there's something, um, I mean, many cultures believe in it. There's like like tree washing and stuff like that in Japan and or tree bathing. Um, and I, I honestly think that, I mean, my, my, my sister, my younger sister, it's only about 15 months, but like um, has done a substantial amount of research. She's a psychologist. And um, so she's always sending me things about nature and kind of the connection. But just there is like, like scientific research on, on the brain and how our brains like react to being kind of in natural spaces. And it, it is therapeutic and rewiring. And there, there's a reason why a lot of people that um, I see a lot of people that were uh, have gone through trauma in their life, whether it's um, through service in the military or other things that happen in their life. And, they go to either run ultras or they run or they go to the mountains because there is something um, I think very powerful and impactful about about spending time out there and also communing and connecting with those places. Um, there's a sense of empowerment that comes through before standing on a summit or completing a goal, but the entire path and process also is empowering. Each step is empowering, and it gives you a sense of I think controlled by letting go at the same time you just realize this like greater flow of something out there it's yeah it's special um i don't think i could live a full life if it didn't involve time in the outdoors well on that note are there any other sort of dream adventure goals or destinations that are on your you know your proverbial bucket list i mean i honestly yeah the, the list is long i mean I would love to, I mean, it's not just about mountains. I, there's just, I would, I would love to visit like all the deserts. I would love to like swim in all the seas. And, um, I love, I love diving as much as I love climbing. And, um, there's always new things to learn. Like I just, um, <laughs> I just literally bought a skateboard cause I didn't do that growing up. And I was just like, let's learn how to skateboard. And, I have lots of pads because at 42, you need pads to learn how to skateboard. Oh my, I, I did exactly the same thing. I got a skateboard last year. I hadn't skateboarded in about 20 years. What is that? Where has that come from? Why did I want to skateboard? I love it. <laughs> I mean, like For me, it's there's like, again, and I'm going to keep saying it over, it, it is about community and connection. And yeah. I think each one of these sports, each one of these kind of like paths we take provide us an opportunity to like, to like get to understand people that we see on a regular basis or like have like have exposure to, but don't truly have a, a relationship with in a sense. And so even if I'm just cruising along my neighborhood and like just a few days in like the skate park already, and I just like, it's a new community that I'm connecting with. And for me, that, that is what life really is about is, is connecting and community. Um, and the more we do that, I think like, the better this world overall will be. It sounds very, I don't know, a little woo sometimes, but like, I do honestly think that like, it is our lack of connection that causes a lot of issues because the, the more we're connected, the more willing we're trying to find ways to work together and to, to help one another. And so um, that empathy through experience is so important. And um, yeah, there, there might be a, um, 
couple of ventures that the skateboard is getting primed for down the road, but that's just kind of it. And I mean, like whether it's food or travel or adventure, like those are all things that I think bring us together and allow us to better understand other people. So um, the, the hope is to kind of live a life that provides as much as that for as long as I can. Brilliantly well put. Well, I do just want to quickly circle back because you talked about some really gnarly stuff that happened to you in Antarctica. You mentioned sort of trench foot, pneumonias, things like that. Are there any other sort of final gnarly moments that you want to share? Uh, I mean, there, yeah, I mean, I, I've been just as a synopsis, I've been helicoptered off mountains twice with life saving stuff. I've had pneumonia, um, where on my first Everest attempt, I got hellied off in 19 when you were there. Um, because my my oxygen levels dropped down to mid fifties without O, and I, so I basically got helicoptered into an ambulance and then spent uh, a, nearly a week in a Kathmandu hospital recovering from that. Um, I have I've had frostbite on the fingers, trench foot on my toes. I've had hypothermia, um, but I would say like all these things like just teach you how to better your systems. Usually, it's it's a it's a it's not the conditions that you're doing. It's, it's the condition of your system. And so for me, all these gnarly moments and everything that happens, there, there, is, there is value always um, in losses and failures. It's just our willingness to have the perspective to extract that value. Um, and, and what we do after things go wrong um, says a lot about um, our humility, but also our, our, I think our sense of perspective on life itself. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Gnarliest Moment. And if you like what you've heard and want others to find us too, we would love it if you can rate, review, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for another incredible guest story exploring the world's most challenging environments.